a manic and intriguing xylophone solo. An ethereal and wordless vocal performance. And some incredibly inventive guitar shredding. You're listening to Themes and Variation. Themes and Variation is a podcast about music and perspectives brought to you by the online music school Soundfly. I'm your host, Carter Lee. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the first episode of 2021 for Themes and Variation. Hope you had a safe and happy holiday. We're going to leave that dumpster fire of a year behind and things are looking up. We have a super fun episode kicking off the year. We're breaking down songs defined by their solos. We've got three incredible songs that you couldn't possibly imagine without their features or solos, and we have a very special guest helping us out. So joining Mejia and I on this episode is the one and only Kirk Hamilton. Kirk is a fabulous writer and musician. He's also the host of one of my favorite podcasts out there, Strong Songs. I remember discovering it in researching other music commentary podcasts when we were starting themes and coming across the episode where he breaks down So What, a classic Miles Davis track, of course, from the Kind of Blue record. And that being one of like the first jazz songs I was ever hip to, hearing Kirk break that song down in the the modal approach to it, the performance, the playing, the instrumentation, all the artists on it in such an amazingly creative and relatable way was just mind-blowing. It's one of those podcasts that you expect to hear at the end of it, a list of like 12 people that helped make it, but no, it's just Kirk and he's doing an incredible job with it. So after listening to this episode, of course, go check out Strong Songs. We get into all kinds of things on this episode, like the little things that make an album memorable, the -the on-the-spot brilliance of Claire Torrey, and how does Tom Morello make those sounds? As always, be sure to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and we have a massive year planned at soundfly.com. Some incredible courses with some amazing artists. Be sure to check out the site for all of your music learning needs. And use the discount code THEMES to take 20% off your monthly or annual subscription. So without further ado, let's get into the episode, Songs Defined by Their Solos. Kirk Hamilton, how are you doing? Thanks for joining us on Themes and Variation today. Hey, my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Uh, It's nice to see both of you, and I'm uh, excited to talk about some music. I'm always excited to talk about (laughs) music. Who doesn't like talking about music? Yeah, we are super excited to have you. Obviously, Strong Sons, one of our favorite music podcasts, so uh, I'm very, very stoked to to geek out on some solos and and songs defined by their solos with you. And of course, Mejia, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Carter, from the other side (laughs) of the apartment, I suppose. Excellent, excellent. I do, as always, have a little kick-off question for the both of you. Knowing what you guys picked, and we will get into them uh, through listening, but mm. were there any songs that you considered that didn't quite make the cut for this episode? You know, I didn't go the guitar hero route for a song to be defined by a solo. I feel like the solo needs to be, be the thing you walk away remembering and really holding on to. So there's a lot of really good songs that have great solos, but because the songs overall are so good... I didn't feel like I could bring one of those in. Like, I looked at a lot of Rush thinking like, oh, bass solos and drum solos (laughs) Mm -hmm. and guitar solos. There's a wealth Mm -hmm. here. But if you look at any one of those songs, I never quite feel like the solo stands out so much more than everything else going on in the piece. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So, like, when I made my choice, I really went with something where I felt like no matter how you feel about it, after you listen to this song, there's one thing that you'll probably be talking about, and it is very much related to the solo itself. Um, <laughs> yeah, I um, I also didn't go the guitar hero route, though mm-hmm. I did think about, there were a couple guitar solos I thought about. The, um, the guitar solo on Two Princes, mm-hmm. that Spin Doctor <laughs> song. I think it's actually, I like that solo because I think it's just underrated. It's this really melodic, really well put together solo. Mm-hmm. Similarly, the solo on Toto's Africa, of the very course. first episode of Strong Songs was about that. And I, 
hadn't really sat with that solo until I made that. And that is a, such a good solo. It's yeah. so good. But I don't know if they define the songs, mm-hmm. right? And so the one I picked is definitely much more definitive. I did almost pick Steve Gregory's sax solo on uh, Careless Whisper. Just because I'm a saxophone player, <laughs> yeah. and I do think yeah. that that sax solo defines that it song. absolutely. But then does. I just I kind of went a different direction. But that I was close to picking that now, one. I appreciate that both of you didn't go the Guitar Hero route because it allowed me to then slide in. And you go fully the did. That's true. Route. I had the benefit of knowing you did, so avoided. Uh, Mejia, shall we have a little listen to your selection? What are we listening to? So we're listening to the Violent Femmes song, um, Gone Daddy Gone, which I love and forgot I loved. I uh, cheated a little on this one and I (laughs) turned to Reddit after ruling out a whole bunch of songs. And a thread from five years ago reminded me the song existed. Mm -hmm. There's just something about their songs that you can't listen Mm -hmm. one time. So by the 11th or 12th listen, I gave in and just realized (laughs) this is the song I'm supposed to do for the episode. Nice. I I know I heard this version before the Gnarls Barkley version of this Mm -hmm. track, but uh, I don't have enough Violent Femmes experience, which again, to me, like this is like the benefit of doing a podcast like this. I get hipped to all this music that I... That you could have asked me about in our home that we share. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. I learned more about you doing this than just like general life. So it it works out. But uh, yeah, take us us away on this track. So... The solo on this song, the featured instrument on this song is atypical, as we were talking about a second ago. It's actually a xylophone, and there's not one but two features. The one feels more significant than the other, for sure. Have you guys ever heard anything else with a xylophone solo? I mean, I feel like I've heard some Frank Zappa stuff where he kind of plays xylophone. Mm, and yeah. This specific sound, maybe not. Maybe like a They Might Be Giants oh, thing. I can see that. Right. Lots of vibes players and marimba mm-hmm. solos and stuff on right, things. But not like this and not with this energy. I've, I mean, I've heard this tune before. I really liked the Violent Femmes for a long time. I recently went on a music podcast. We talked about American music, that song of mm-hmm. theirs. And mm-hmm. it kind of got me listening to them again. They just have such a like busky, yes. raw, kind of rough energy since that's kind of their background. Yeah. And this solo, I mean, I have I heard a solo like this? No. This, <laughs> this is, it's its own thing for sure. I mean, I think it's not necessarily a solo that you remember because you love it. There's even some notes in there where I'm like, that's kind of a weird choice. He goes but... out. Let's say he goes out. Yeah. <laughs> it goes a little out. There, when I first heard it, I was like, those are some, you know, quote unquote, because I'm a music school kid, wrong choices. But they don't feel out of place on this solo. They right. they like work. There's like, there's a flat 13, like just like very violently struck. And, and yet it's still like, okay, I like this. Like, yeah. I actually really like this. And I think the the timbre of the xylophone has so much to do with it. Mm-hmm. And maybe like if that note was hanging on a little bit longer, it'd be like, and a little more jarring. And honestly, the dude can play. Like there are some some chops on the solo for sure, I mm-hmm. think. The other reason why some of those notes work is because this song is pretty power chord heavy. Right, you know? of course. So I think the clashes that you expect to hear aren't actually happening. They're just kind of implied somewhere in your brain. <laughs> there are definitely lines in the solo where he purposefully is ending it in a strange place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like some of the dissonance yeah. in the solo or the like, quote unquote, wrong notes are just he's like, screw it. I don't care. I'm going to go up to the black keys and just like play something that sounds wrong as a like in your face thing, which this like, I was cracking up listening to this. It had been so long since I'd heard this tune. And I put it on before we recorded this, and I'm like, yeah, all right, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that feeling, which is totally on purpose. Like, yeah. it's it yeah. always kind of, the lines start inside. They're kind of going up the minor scale, and then, nope, nope, we're going somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. And there's the one line, I think the flat 13 maybe is what you were talking about. Yeah. I didn't transcribe this, but there's one line that just straight up goes straight up a minor scale, and then the last note is just like, yeah. like, it's just this weird sort yeah. of honk. Let's uh let's listen to the solo sure. as yeah. as we're, as we're talking about great. it here. So let's uh here we go. It's gone away. 
I should have sent you guys a request to have you watch the music video for this, but I didn't realize there even was one until shortly before we all sat down. Um, mm. It had kind of a weird effect on me because I've, I've known this song for a while. <laughs> the music video has this sort of manic energy to it that makes the song make more sense, including that solo. It feels film scorey all of a sudden in that way that like tension works really well in a, in a scene. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that makes sense. I do like how there's a little bit of like trading that happens towards the end of that solo. Yeah, it's a jam. It isn't what you expect to hear mm-hmm. from a guitar given the rest of the song, but it works. We've talked so much about tidy solos, or at least I, I tend to talk about like a lot of the solos I was talking about, the Toto's Africa solo, whatever, the Spin Doctor solo. They're very tidy. They're very clean. Mm-hmm. They're, they were done in the studio in a way that like best presents the harmony and the melody. Yeah. A thing I like about Violent Femmes is that they sound like they're all just in the room together playing music. Yeah. There are a lot of bands that just don't quite record that mm-hmm. way. Or they right. do just to get the groove right, but you don't get the sense that there's just a room right. with kind of madness unspooling. And that you totally get that feeling from this. It just feels like they're having fun. It's an awesome point. I could I could see this being like first take, we got it. We liked it. Like maybe we'll do another one. Right. But like right. you mentioned, like so many other solos. 12 takes later. Sure. Nothing wrong with that. But like, no, I, I love that that energy and, and that could have just been one take. And there's something mm-hmm. really special about that. There's something to like the punk rock genre where it feels like everybody is alive and present in the moment versus overly rehearsed. Yes. And, you know, even like the most fun, big production hits sound kind of like for somebody, this was a job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You referenced the trading. Do you want to listen to that real quick? Yeah, sure. I did do a little reading on just what they were like at this point in their career, which like it's the very early part of it. And it does sound like it was kind of mayhem. Like they were figuring things out. They were not supervised (laughs) to the level they probably needed to be. So there was kind of an element of chaos, maybe not as controlled as it could have been. And I think that comes through in, in the music in a way that it might seem a little irresponsible on some level, but might also be responsible for their success. Mm -hmm. Um, because I was in research mode this morning, I did come across a Pitchfork article where they called Violent Femmes possibly the greatest mixtape band of its era. Interesting. Mm. The way they grew in popularity had a lot to do with just being played at college parties or like friends telling each other, you got to check out this song, which is yeah. the ideal way to hear about music, you know? Oh, yeah, that makes sense, I guess. Yeah. I think I first heard this band. I heard the Violent Thumbs when I was a kid at summer camp. Oh. Um, we had counselors who would sing Blister in the Sun because it's such a fun participation yeah. song because of the like <laughs> clapping that happens. And then I think that later someone was like, you know what that song's about, don't you? And like, and I, because, you know, I was like 12 at the time or something. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and started to, you know, explain the lyrics to me. <laughs> On the topic of lyrics, I'm curious if either of you gave any thought to what this song could possibly be about. Uh, I did I not. Didn't. That's so I'm no. curious of your interpretation. So when it comes to lyrics, I don't know that there's ever a right answer. Of course, of course. At first, when I went to analyze the lyrics in this song, I considered not even doing it because I often assume writers are going to be older and more experienced and mature than they are. And if you look at it through that lens, it kind of has the creepy vibe of like a police song, you know, like it's a man singing about a young girl and Mm -hmm. it's a little (laughs) uncomfortable. Um, But... With the background information that um, the guitarist slash vocalist slash songwriter Gordon Gano was only recently out of high school when the song was written, it becomes a lot more mm. innocent. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so silly that I've never thought about it. And lyrics would be the thing that I often often <laughs> overlook, as, as listeners of this podcast would know. Uh, but just, yeah, the, the idea of like you have to think about what the song, like what was going on in the songwriter's life at that time. Um, but something like this, yeah, I feel like it, it's definitely hard to separate. And sometimes. it ages like, interestingly. Like I saw Paul McCartney perform when I'm 64 after <laughs> he was 64. And it yeah, just, weird. Uh, Changes the meaning entirely. <laughs> the song about time travel now. Yeah. 
No, it's true. Age is kind of a fixed point when you write about, you know, she's sweet and 16. That can be creepy or that can be you are literally 16 yeah. when you wrote this. It's a little similar to a char- like writing it from the voice of a character. Mm-hmm. I've thought about doing an episode on uh, Money for Nothing, mm-hmm. which has uh, mm-hmm. to- like a repeated homophobic slur in the second verse that is like infamous. And that song is written from the perspective of someone who is kind of this just like good old boy watching TV and like talking mm. smack about the guys on MTV. And that is in his voice that he says all he's kind of just a jerk and he says all these things. Right. Like, is that an alibi for just sneaking this word into the right. song or police songs? You mentioned police songs. I thought mm-hmm. a lot about that, about every breath you take. And like, it's like the official theme song of Stalkers. So creepy. <laughs> Even though yeah. I think in that song, too, he's trying to capture the like pathetic vibe of this person. Right. It's still. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's uh, I guess it's a slightly different subject. It's also misunderstood. You don't always know how your audience is going to respond to something. Yeah, some of that is death of the author stuff, right? Like just that it's going to be interpreted how it's going to be interpreted. The the example I think of always is Dave Chappelle and and the Clayton Bigsby mm-hmm. skit being taken by the wrong people that are taking the skit totally wrong and using it as a as a means to justify like their shitty behavior. So like yeah, yeah. it's it's crazy that you put something out and I can imagine that being incredibly depressing that like Whoa, that is not at all what this song is about. No, Born in the USA. I feel like Born in the USA yes. is such a classic example. That one, that, oh that song has always God, used yes. as this patriotic anthem. And then yeah. you're like, you know what like, this song yeah. is about? Have you even read the lyrics? Like, like, what are you doing? Yeah. It has a kick in guitar and it's got the boss, no, man. Like, Born in the USA. Like, yeah, America. And you're like, uh, okay. Um, but, but yeah, I do think as a songwriter, you are just kind of releasing your work into the world at a certain point. And it's going to be taken mm-hmm. and interpreted however it is. Speaking of that happening to songwriters, if you check certain distribution channels, there is a um, slash in the title of the song, uh, making it Gone Daddy Gone slash I Just Want to Make Love to You. Oh, sure. (laughs) It's not like anything too nefarious, Mm -hmm. but it does come from a song written by um, Willie Dixon, first recorded by Muddy Waters, made popular by Etta James. The song later went on to be recorded by a whole bunch of different artists, including Foghat, and it's on the Rolling Stones debut album as well. If you want to listen to, like, the Muddy Waters... Sure. I just realized this is the second song I've brought on the podcast that features the xylophone, yeah, though. Dance Macabre also. Oh, man. Dance Macabre has a great xylophone part. Putting the button on, does it define the track? It absolutely does, because I can't picture anything else playing that solo. I just can't. Mm-hmm. listening to we are listening to the great gig in the sky from the dark side of the moon 1973 pink floyd album that i at least first heard while watching the wizard of oz in high school (laughs) and that was really my introduction to this album and to pink floyd i was like not super cool or into classic rock and a group of friends and i watched the wizard of oz with the dark side of the moon and that was the first time that I heard the solo that I have brought in, which is about yes. to happen. And that is Claire Torrey's famous vocal solo on this tune, which I think is interesting in a lot of different ways and thought it would be kind of fun to talk about. But really, it's also just a killer solo. Yeah. I mean, she just yeah. tears she just tears that thing down. This is a record, obviously, it's maybe the second highest selling record of all time. If not the highest, it might be. It's that or Thriller, interesting. right? I didn't uh, know that. Right. It's so right. one of those. Um but when you mentioned, okay, I'm going to do the great gig in the sky, I thought for sure it was like David Gilmore solo. And then I hear like <laughs> the guitar swells and stuff. And then Claire Torrey comes in and I'm like blown away in the best way. Obviously, in an era where the guitar hero is king, they went a totally different direction. Mm-hmm. Pink Floyd is one of those groups where you put on an album and you tend to listen to it end to end. And this does fall into the category of songs that I, I always knew I knew. But I'm not sure that I would have placed the right title with the right song. Mm. Um, Because it's part of an experience. It is. I only know it. Well, I know it because I became fascinated by this solo, by Claire uh, Claire Torrey's solo, 
And so this album, actually, so Dick Perry plays saxophone on this album as well. Mm. And mm. when I was in high school and kind of growing up, I was really into jazz, a jazz saxophone player. I went to this like school that was like not a great public school, but had a really good music program in Indiana. <laughs> and I was in the jazz band there and like really into jazz. And that was all I did. It was like listen to like Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, and like transcribed jazz solos. So I wasn't really into like grunge bands. I wasn't into cool music. And I didn't listen to a lot of rock or know about this. And when I heard Pink Floyd and I saw the album cover, you know, it's like all black with this yeah. rainbow color. And I was like, I don't know, man. That's that's pretty out. That's pretty rock and it's too cool for Forbidden me. album, yeah. Right. And so then my friends were like, we're going to do this thing because you heard if you started on the third lines yeah. where, you know, this is the, for anyone who listening to this who doesn't know, you can start The Dark Side of the Moon by pressing play on the third lines where at the beginning of The Wizard of Oz and then it like lines up with the movie. It It's pretty cool. There's definitely a lot of times in it where it does do stuff that lines up with the music. Mm-hmm. And I remember hearing Dick Perry playing these big, burly, like, tenor sax solos and being like, oh, man, like, this is so cool. Like, a rock band can have a sax solo. This is yeah. also sounds kind of stupid now. Like, to, like yes, of course. Like, <laughs> saxophone was like a defining sound of rock and roll, man. But at the time, I was just sort of piecing together how all these different genres were. Right. Of course. And I heard him and was like, well, this is great. And then this song came on. And, I mean, the vocal <laughs> solo that we'll listen to in a second just blew me away. And also, it happens when Dorothy's house blows away. <laughs> And so it takes place in the movie as the house is flying through the tornado. And it's called The Great Gig in the Sky. The name always stuck with me because I was like, it can't be a coincidence. (laughs) It's called The Great Gig in the Sky. That must be why. Uh, One of the most amazing moments when you're watching uh, The Wizard of Oz with this is when the door opens and you see Oz and it's in color. One of the greatest moments in like cinematic history. Mm -hmm. You hear the ching right as the door opens at the beginning of Money. And then Money starts playing. And it's like as they she walks out into Oz, it's like that Money guitar riff, which is that right is after sick. the Great Gig in the Sky has sort of yeah. cleared the decks with this super epic, grand, flying piece of music. So it's, it was a formative experience for me, I guess, as a listener, just because I'll never forget it. It was so audiovisual. It was so tied up in this solo, in her singing in the band, and in this not being what I was expecting it to be at all. listened to this a lot the last couple of days and I'm still at a loss for words. <laughs> Anybody learning to solo. So you want to you want to get better at improvising, transcribe Seriously. horn players and yeah. vocalists. Like learn to get that mm-hmm. human phrasing into your playing cuz if you play guitar or bass you can just noodle forever and like no, nobody wants to hear that. But mm-hmm. uh, take it away, please <laughs> Kirk. I'm I'm at uh, like Yeah, there's a lot to talk about. There is the mm-hmm. whole question of composition, which is something that became a legal dispute that I think is a really fascinating question. Just to talk about the solo, though, yeah, I mean, this is a bananas solo. (laughs) The story behind this is they brought Claritori into into the studio and they were like, hey, we've got this one sort of jam. It's like a G minor to C7 thing. It's just two chords over and over and over again. They're just racking out. Mm -hmm. We want you to just sing something over it. And so she does a couple of takes. She'd been like kind of singing words, but they're like, we don't want words. Just sing, you know, vocalese, sort of scatting, whatever you want to call it. Just sing sounds. She did a couple takes and they just cut it together from those takes and made this like legendary track. The opening line that, whoa, Mm -hmm. ah, that is so iconic. Mm. There are few wordless vocal lines as amazing as that jump up to the high G. She's got the most smoke in high G. She's right there on her break. And then she'll slide up to that A. ah, I can't sing it. ah, I'll sing it (laughs) down an octave. When she goes to the A and then she's just like, ah, like (laughs) screaming and going and going and going and going. And you're like, oh, my God. And um, it's just it's an incredible thing that she did, that she went into the studio and channeled that kind of energy into something that holds together, like that's that coherent and thoughtful and instantly memorable. It's such a good solo. I just it's so good. (laughs) You would have a lot to gain from transcribing this performance. For sure very much G Dorian and whether or not she was thinking that in the moment is still just so, so hip. 
you know, I, I think if the song maybe is being in B flat, and I, I know it floats around a little bit because yeah, it moves, moves around. to B minor and stuff, but that uh, G minor seven to C seven, that blues vibe, because you're getting that, like, if you yeah. want to think of it, the one or the six, that's just so cool that you can play Dorian like that. I know I'm getting into, like, weird, <laughs> like, technical harmony land, but... No, but the notes she sings matter. Yeah, and you should nerd out. It's Pink Floyd. Yeah, right. Hey, Carter, have you heard about Soundfly's new subscription? Let's say I haven't. I think it's something you'd be super into. You know about Soundfly's courses, right? Of course I do. Not only are they highly engaging, they make it possible for us to do this show. Right. And you know about the premium courses, right? You mean like modern pop vocal production or orchestration for strings? Yep. Or faders up one, modern mix techniques, introduction to making music in Logic Pro, or advanced synths and patch design for producers. Or songwriting for producers? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, as a Soundfly subscriber, you'd get access to all of those and more. Plus, an invitation to our online community of students, mentors, and Soundfly team members, like you and me. A subscription's perfect if you want to explore at your own pace, but still like the idea of a helpful community of expert professionals and passionate hobbyists standing by, ready to help. Wow, when you put it like that, it sounds like an existential conundrum for me personally, and a pretty sweet deal for just about anyone else. It is a sweet deal for just about anyone, and it gets even sweeter. Anyone listening to this episode can use the code THEMES to get an exclusive discount at soundfly.com. Because at Soundfly, we want to help you reach your musical goals. You know, I think this whole album, too, not to change the subject from harmonic theory, because I do love that. Um <laughs> Alan Parsons was responsible for a lot of the sonic elements on this album, apparently Mm -hmm. including bringing her into the studio. And I think all those little things that make this album so memorable, not that you can like put like, oh, this is the sound of the clocks and also this amazing vocal, like they're not really comparable, but they do make it so much more than just a rock album. Yes, I completely agree with that. Completely agree. Like each thing makes you, it it adds an element that you weren't expecting. And each one contributes to this feeling of it not being, it's an experience. It's not just a collection of songs. Totally. Like you said, uh, like you Mm -hmm. were saying before, you listen to the whole album all the way through. Pink Floyd is very good at this. Mm -hmm. And now, I mean, lots of bands do this. Like it's a concept album. Like that's that's just what that is. But Dark Side of the Moon is maybe the ultimate example of that. And it's all Mm -hmm. in those sounds, those little interstitials. Even though like that spoken almost skit at the very beginning of this song before she starts singing, it all gives you this feeling that this is more than just a song. And The Great Gig in the Sky isn't the kind of thing that you would hear necessarily on the radio. Like, they wouldn't play this as a single. Right. Because that's not its purpose. It's kind of a bridge song on the album. Like, it goes between two songs that are more traditional Pink Floyd songs. Uh-huh. But it's so crucial. Like, without it, this album almost doesn't work. Like, you're saying it's between two more traditional songs. I don't think either of those songs would have quite the legacy and impact they did if it weren't for this bridge and the fact that a lot of people who first heard it did experience everything in yep. in that together way. I also think that those little moments, whether it's a female vocal you weren't expecting or the sound of change, they make it so that the music's a little more accessible. Your listener's not yeah. always a musician. It's, or like the saxophone thing I was right. saying. It's the same kind of thing. Right. You're like, oh, okay, it's not just another amazing guitar solo. I'm sucked into this. It's different. And at the same time, there there is kind of an inherent emotional connection people have to these little sound clues. And I, I think the sound of a woman almost like wailing is emotional. Mm-hmm. The scream, I'm really like the scream that she does, yeah. that scream on those, on those A's and G's is just, it's so kind of primal and it connects in such a level. And yeah, just like you were saying it, it's a different sound. Like it's hearing a woman sing and especially sing in this yeah. way. It isn't just like a backup vocalist singing harmonies or something that stands out. Have you both seen the movie 20 Feet from Stardom? Uh, I've not. No. It's a fantastic documentary. And it's so it's all about backup vocalists and backup mm-hmm. singing. Right. And about singing in general and like singing in harmony and just the pleasures of singing in harmony, yeah. which is one of the most amazing things you can do. Mary Clayton features quite a bit in it, and she sang the famous vocal part on Gimme Shelter. Mm. You know, rape, right. murder, it's just a shot away. They tell the whole story of bringing her in, and it's very similar, actually, to, this, to the story of recording Clara Torrey on The Great King in the Sky. It's just sort of this, like, okay, well, we need something here. Let's just bring in a singer. We've got a lot of the track recorded. And then a woman comes into the studio, and, like, they put a microphone in front of her. In Mary Clayton's case, it was, like, the middle of the night. She says her hair work was in rollers. <laughs> She's, like, exhausted. And she just, like, lays it down. And it's the same thing here with Clara Torrey. She just destroys yeah. this tune and gives them these perfect takes. 
it kind of starts to blur the line between what it means to be like a side person, like a contributing musician in the studio, mm-hmm. right, to right. being a like compositionally contributing person, to being like the reason the song is good. I guess that kind of transitions us somewhat into the discussion of the lawsuit, which I think is interesting right. in that Claire Torrey sued in 2004 for a songwriting mm-hmm. credit on the song because she had been paid. I can't remember the number. It was like 30 pounds, 30 pounds, Yeah, which I, you know, adjusted for inflation. This was 72 probably. So yeah. it's quite not nothing. It's not <laughs> as little as it sounds like, but almost nothing for a song that was like, you know, a featured <laughs> song on one of the greatest selling albums of all time. Yeah. She, and she didn't win. They settled. But uh, she does have a co-songwriting credit now, That's which good. I would imagine was probably pretty important to her and, I w- and is absolutely deserved, I think. It was created by more people than just her. Like you mentioned Alan Parsons. Mm-hmm. The music is really an important part of this. It's a wonderful piece of music. But her melody, especially that opening phrase that she sings, that is mm-hmm. the melody yeah. of The Great Gig in the Sky. And she wrote it. She may have written it on the spot, but she did write it. And it raises a lot of interesting questions for me. People think of improvisation and composition as two different things. And it's something that I don't do and haven't done for a long time and always try to disabuse whatever, like Strong Songs listeners or whoever of, of the idea that when you're sitting down to play a jazz solo or whatever, like a guitar solo in the middle of a song, you're doing something different than you're doing when you sit down at the piano to write a song. And you just aren't. It's Mm. the exact same creative process. You're just doing it over a different time frame. And in this case, she improvised the solo, but that's not any different than writing the song, like writing the melody to the song. She just wrote it really quickly and on the fly, but she had the capacity to do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've heard people complain like, oh, so-and-so got a writing credit and they were only in the studio for two minutes or whatever. It's not just the time you spend on the recording. It took her her lifetime up to that point to become the singer and the improviser she was. Right, right. I am a fan of Alan Parsons' work. Um, I went to a clinic Mm -hmm. once where he talked about the Telltale Heart, and I can't remember who the singer was on that. But he basically said, like, the song was pretty good. But then he came in and sang it, and the song was great. And I feel like this would have been a very similar experience. Yeah, it's just very similar, I would say, to like a script and an actor mm. where you get the right person playing the right part and you're like, oh, it's a real person now. You've taken this sort of collection of lines and turned it into a human being that I can believe in. So one more track. I did want to mention, though, I don't think I did it at the top. There was one other track that I thought of. You know, we did talk about, like, instrumentals and jazz and, like, where we're going to go with it. And I did think very briefly about a particular Bill Evans recording. So there's this recording of Nardis from his late trios from, like, the 80s, early 80s, so towards the end of his life. And it's the live uh, in Paris concert, or the Paris concert, I believe. I think it's just called the Paris concert. I just thinking of now I get goosebumps. But the song that I did pick, <laughs> I also get goosebumps for different reasons because it's uh, nostalgic, uh, angsty teen vibes for sure. Uh, <laughs> so let's have a listen. Hey, yo, so check this out. Check this out moment. <laughs> so you're <Yeah>. your own hype man. <laughs> yes, it's a cousin of the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> for for anybody that didn't catch that intro, though, we are listening to Rage Against the Machines. Know your enemy. Your guys' experience with Rage Against the Machine, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Is it a pen that, that you have listened to a lot, a little, not really so much? I mean, I think I mentally misplace them. Just because, like, the era when I was most aware of Rage Against the Machine was probably, like, towards the end of high school. So for me, I I missed a lot of the deeper meaning to their songs and just kind of put it in this category of stuff you listen to with your friends when you're driving to lunch. 
I definitely misplaced the meaning. Like, I think the machine I raged against as a kid was like my parents, if they grounded me or something, I would throw like, <laughs> I'm yeah. rage against the machine track on. But Kirk, any, yeah, your experience with, with rage against the machine. Well, so yeah, like I said earlier, I wasn't really into like grunge or rock or, or any, any of like cooler music in the early nineties. Um, when I was in high school, that I was into like jazz. I was kind of this jazz, which nerd. is cool. You keep selling yourself short on that. I think it's cool to be into <laughs> jazz in high school. I, like, yeah, I guess I'm, I don't, retrospect. and I don't mean to. to yeah, <laughs> like I, 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 that sounds cool. Even though, like to me, it really wasn't cool. Like I, we had we had a, we had a big band program. I was like a band nerd. It was just <laughs> at our high school, you would do a yeah. band nerd if you were like really into Charlie Parker, which sounds cool now. now because now it's very cool. now being really into Charlie Parker is like legitimately cool. Yeah. But back then, it, re- it really kind of wasn't. But I got into Rage in college, and then. After college, I got much more into music, started learning much of their instruments, got into rock and like realized what I'd been missing out on and, and took on this much more sort of just pan genre. All good music is good. My jazz composition professor, Ronnie Miller at a University of Miami, brought in Rage Against the Machine That's one day. That's so sick. And that was the first time I thought about them in a musical context because he was talking to us about the different types of song and like different types of harmony, different types of melody. And he talked about a riff based song. Mm. And I'd always heard the word riff and thought... I, I don't know, like it just, it's like a lick, like a riff. <laughs> but he was using it in this really specific way that you, the two of you may be familiar with. And it just basically to mean a piece of music that doesn't have defined harmony, which mm-hmm. this is like Rage Against the Machine is such a riff band. And this is kind of just like, yeah, it has harmony, like it's in a key, but it's really just these riffs yep. that play. And everyone just plays them together and that's it. And then you sing a melody over that. But there isn't like a lot of chords happening. It's more just riffs. So that was the uh, the sort of musical context of saying like, oh, this should be considered alongside modal harmony. And, you know, 12-tone harmony is like a riff-based song. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. Totally. And I sort of, you know, started listening to them more from there. You mentioned riff-based that's like a key part of of my listening of this band. I can't think of a band like obviously there's so many rock bands with so many riffs. This band though of in terms of like iconic just heavy riffs that you can instantly recognize. Yeah. I don't think there's a band that tops Rage when it comes to that. What do you guys think is necessary from the riff for it to be enough to be the foundation of a song, you know, removing traditional harmony from the picture? I guess it, it doesn't always remove harmony entirely, right? Like mm-hmm. it's usually a lot of riffs are based around one scale. Like it's just right. more modal than it is like harmonic. And so it's moving more in scalar terms. So I think it just has to be a good melody. Mm-hmm. Like the, the, the whole idea of bass as melody, which Carter, I, as a bass player, I'm sure you will, you've thought about this all the time <laughs> and probably talked about it. But but that to me was another mind-blowing thing back from school was listening to like Basie's band and realizing that the bass line was a counter melody. Mm. Like it it is part of the rhythm section, but it is not doing what the guitar and the piano are doing. It's playing its own melody and that melody lines up with, you know, what the rest of the band is doing and then approaching whatever, listening to Paul McCartney and being like, oh, all of his bass lines are incredible melodies. Like, you know, work really beautifully with the songs. Um, So yeah, I would say it needs to just be really melodically strong. And then you could write a, you could write a melody over any like really strong uh, melody in that way. you first hear that like that that technique that Morello is absolutely known for and I might stumble upon this and talk about it again later when we get to the solo of course so forgive me if I repeat myself but that kill switch turntable technique is the sickest thing I I know like (laughs) turntables for me on tracks are not like I'm not really into it if it's run DMC that's awesome that's totally fine and that that has place and it's part of that era the way that he, like, to be inspired by that, when you think about, okay, whatever, you know, we were thinking about tenants of making a great soloist, being inspired by another instrument, and he picked the turntable, like, that is so mm-hmm. sick to me. And really what he's doing there, technically, is uh, if you have a guitar, one, you can just put a kill switch on your guitar and it kills the sound. And you can just hit it over and over. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can, if you have a guitar that has independent volume controls or your pickups, you can turn one so it's totally dead and then toggle between them, which is what he's doing. And he also has a Digitech whammy pedal. I know this is here, <laughs> Nerd Central, but he has it. Well, it's important. all about that whammy pedal. It like, is. That's such a defining it aspect is. of his sound. It <laughs> is. It absolutely is. So he has it pitched up a fifth. So you're getting both uh, the note that he's originally playing and a note a fifth above. Mm-hmm. Uh, not on the riff when he's playing it, but on the solo and on that intro. And like that intro just sets it up so nicely. There's that 
halftime drum groove, the bass playing a little bit of like a slap thing, there's like a pluck, and then the way that it, it pans the guitar all the way to the left, zeroes in on the riff, sets up the energy for the rest of the track, mm. and it really is this explosion when the, the riff ab- like hits. It, it's so sick. I think it's interesting, uh, we talked harmonically in, in the riff, Really quick, it's just F sharp minor blues. Basically, there's that the the flat five yep. you hear. There is a, a leading tone to the one, but the the riff is just all F sharp minor blues. When you listen to Del Roca's verse, I won't get into lyrics too much. I, I mean, obviously, uh, protest anthem. It's crazy how relevant this song is. That's today. what I was gonna like, say. Yeah. Listening to this, like as when I was in high school, like you were saying, it's like yeah, like my parents. <laughs> yeah, listening to this now, I'm like hell yeah, like yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I'm like I'm down with the lyrics yeah. of this song. <laughs> yeah, it's it's sad how relevant they are today for sure. But like I, I think that one thing that's interesting when you listen back and like obviously in hip hop, the ideas of doubles on vocals. Uh, very prevalent and I think they maybe took like maybe a deft touch in in deciding on what words they were going to double so you go back and and listen like defy Mm. is doubled born to rage against them is doubled there's a lot of callbacks lyrically which are really cool like we don't need the key will break in comes a couple of different times uh, throughout the, the track I mean protest anthem for sure and it, and it takes on an entirely different meaning today than than obviously when i was a kid i have to mention the end of the track that is just so powerful lyrically oh man yeah all of which are american dreams 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 to a, repeat a, a lyric that way mm-hmm. when the band has dropped out in this very uncomfortable naked mm-hmm. way right. that makes you just sit there and be with the humanity of the person who's yep. just shouting. It's like it's like having someone shout in your face yeah. by themselves, just scream at you, which, gosh, I don't know if I've ever really had that happen. Like, I've had weird <laughs> encounters with people at various points. But like, you know, like it, just a person yelling at you, it's so uncomfortable. We're so hardwired to react to that in this yep. really like shocked way. And to make it this really profound thing that he's really trying to drive home. It it does. It works. Like, yeah. at the end of the song, I'm like, I understand what you were trying to say in a way that I would not have if you had just made this the lyrics of the song. Because he's repeating it so much, it makes you then think about, well, what did he say before all of which mm-hmm. are American dreams? Yes. I forgot. And you're like, oh, yes. wow, yeah. No, and it keeps hitting you back. I got no I think what starts to make this solo work for me is the anticipation that gets built up from that bridge. That just that mm. chugging, like dig a dan, dig a dig a dan, dig a dig a dan, dan, like total classic rock kind of vibe. But like <laughs> if anybody else did, I'd be like, that's kind of cheesy. I didn't know this, but that's Maynard James uh, Keenan from Tool really? singing. Yeah, I saw uh, that when I looked that up. He like yeah. was subbing in, right, for yeah. Perry Farrell. Yeah. I didn't know this at all. I didn't know the story of this. I, one thing to listen to too is like lyrically that i got no patience now so sick of complacence now the way the phrasing flips Mm. the second time that comes around is just so sick Okay, so uh, yeah, it is honestly one of my favorites for for a lot of reasons. Give one, us them. I'll give you a lot. So okay. the maybe not time, <laughs> but the reason, like, so the bass just holding down the riff. I think traditionally a lot of times you'd have uh, the you'd, you know Merlo would overdub the guitar playing that same riff and just kind of fatten up the sound. But that space that's created mm. and the guitar just like takes yeah. on this otherworldly. Oh, my God. There's absolutely motivic development in this solo. Um, <laughs> For sure. The first, like, And I think of it as three main uh, phrases or areas. So he comes off with those wailing bends and like the tremolo bar, the whammy bar, and the whammy pedal. And it just gets your attention. He didn't immediately go into like shred city with it, which is cool. I think 
you have to tell a bit of a story with any solo. And I made the mistake always of being like, bass solo, like here's, <laughs> here's your notes, like right away. Get, but, get him my licks in. There we go. Exactly. <laughs> And he does. I think the the coolest thing about Morello for me, I remember seeing somewhere he said something like, you know, I first got to L.A. Uh, I think he maybe even grew up with L.A., but he went to he has a degree from Harvard. So maybe when he got back from Harvard, he's back in L.A., which is okay. so fancy sick. Man. Yeah. Fancy man Morello. What's his degree in? Social sciences. He's, he went to Harvard and then he started a band called Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> yeah. Okay. He worked for a politician before this, too, which maybe like something definitely happened that like put him down this path. He said something like to the effect of, you know, I was first in LA in like the late '80s. Everybody could play like Ingve Malmsteen, and I decided that was mm. not a race that I wanted to run. And then, you know, the second part of the solo is just him shredding, which is so sick. Like he can do it, but he decided to find his own thing, and the own thing that he found was that incredible tone uh, with the whammy pedal and the obviously the kill switch turntable thing. Like that is such an identifiable thing to him. That second part I talked about a little bit. The really fast part, which I love. Who doesn't love a little <laughs> bit of shredding? The first part, he picks every single note. It's that tremolo speed picking. And then the mm-hmm. second thing, he's playing similar phrases, but totally legato. And it gives you this totally different feel. He's targeting some of the same notes and like shredding around them and then landing on them. And then finally, we get to the turntable effect. The coolest thing about that, like, yeah, we talk about being inspired by other instruments and, and using that. And, like, if I discovered a new technique like that, I would overuse the <laughs> hell out of it. But, and right. yes, the song features it a couple times and he's known for it, but I don't think that, like, he overdoes it That's with tasteful. it. I mean, you guys can push back yeah. on that. I don't think he overdoes it. The phrasing that he uses at the end of the soul with that is like, he's using a dotted eighth note, like, over triplets. He's playing through the bar line very consistently. It's just. It's, it's a short solo. It's like 40 seconds. He's in, he's out, but it comes like three different crazy techniques, uh, a lot of different uh, motivic development within each one of those techniques. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite rock solos of all time. <laughs> yeah, it's a good solo. It does what it has to to serve the song, which, mm-hmm. I mean, arguably, I feel it does that. And and to me, I would take that over somebody who is super chopsy or not somebody, but a solo that was super chopsy pretty much any day of the week. Mm-hmm. It's funny you say that, though, too, because this does have that element of, like, very chopsy totally. playing. Like, as far as his playing, but it's it's balanced between exactly. two things, and it doesn't take over the solo. It's a nice little, like, whoa, like, where what? I think the whammy bar, or the whammy pedal um, sort of uh, attenuates the chop somewhat, too, mm. because it's so strange sounding. Yeah, he begins yeah. doing finger tapping stuff in the middle of his solo. It's just so bizarre that there's this second <laughs> voice going uh, kind of like it's just moving in total parallel yeah. with what he's playing. Mm-hmm. And it's it just sounds like atonal craziness. Like this is a really technically impressive guitar solo. But when you bring that kind of a sound to it, it almost goes beyond the chops and it just becomes about this experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then he, I do think he brilliantly brings it back. That like he like really gets in there with the rhythm and that like like he goes into the triplets and it's like it becomes almost like a percussive thing toward the end, which is a really cool way to bring it back down to earth. Like it literally like ties it back down into the groove. After he's been, yeah, completely out in outer space, mm-hmm. both like harmonically or sonically, I wouldn't <laughs> even say harmonically, just like his sound yeah. and rhythmically is so stretchy out. So it's like kind of flying out into outer space and then coming back down to earth and like punching the ground yeah. <laughs> a little bit. And it, it really, has, it's like a little journey and that really works for me. Yeah. Do you think that the solo defines Know Your Enemy? It's tough, right? I mean, it's a little bit of a like tricky concept just to begin with because it's it's like uh it's nebulous mm-hmm. like what does it mean for something to define something else would the song wouldn't be what it what it is without this solo like i was just saying it's like a wonderful contrast to the rest of the song but the song is also defined by that basic riff that they play yeah. I mean, that riff is kind of the bones of the song but the solo is like the hairdo so like <laughs> what defines a person like the hairdo needs the bones to like be held up <laughs> but if you don't have a hairdo then it's just you're a skeleton I don't know I'm, I, I don't know where I'm going I think you're on point I'm with you but like you're just talking skeleton yeah it's hard to consider the one without the other it's an essential part of the song absolutely I think it'd be something that I could convince myself of but I think because it does have more of a political protesting message behind it i have to like Mm. really like some of the you guys very nearly convinced me with the points you made about that solo but i i really have to feel like i get that message from the solo by itself in this case i think 
because the overall song has such a profound meaning. It's like a person trying to break away from the conformity of capitalism. Yeah, I'm almost there with and that. And they start, <laughs> when you're young, you start and you're so free and wild, but then eventually you got to come back down and start playing in time. And then you just stop soloing entirely. <laughs> okay. And you're just subsumed into the capitalist that, nightmare. All right. That was my, that was my valiant that was attempt. That really good. Wow. <laughs> Lyric interpretation. That was a very oh, nice man. summation. I mean, maybe. Guys, fantastic stuff uh kirk thank you so much for joining yeah, us uh, it was on, nice on course, this episode this was so much fun uh you have one of our favorite music podcasts on the planet strong songs i'd love you know would you mind sharing some info on on your pod for our listeners yeah it's called strong songs it's um a bi-weekly show that's just me i make it all by myself i'm totally listener supported and just like make this thing i've been doing it for almost two full years now nice. which has been amazing most episodes will focus on one song and then spend about an hour and i just it's very you know i spend a lot of time on it so it's very scripted and I break it all down and sort of analyze the song and explain everything about it with the goal of making it possible for people to hear new things and songs that they thought they knew really well that's sort of the unspoken thing mm-hmm. so there's there's like music theory explanation and I'll explain what things are it's approachable like I don't do a ton of just really far out there music theory I'm not trying to just show off things that I know also I like don't know that much music theory <laughs> it's not like a theory podcast like I'm not into music theory really to begin with it's more just like explaining music and it's I think it kind of works for all musical levels like if yeah. you don't know anything totally. I've heard from listeners who don't know anything and like it and also people who are professional musicians who think that it's cool and gives them language for explaining music so anyways strongsongspodcast.com it's at all the podcast places you can listen to it and I hope people check it out because um, I have I have a good time good time making it you'll hear podcasts now and and at the end they roll the credits and there's like 12 people working on them your (laughs) strong song sounds like there is 12 people working on them but you're clearly putting like a ton of uh blood and sweat into it and it's Uh, awesome yeah it's 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 a lot of work it's It's that thing i'm sure you can both relate we can it's pretty fun yeah it is work and you know it is work there are times where it's really difficult but it's so fun to make the show that like it doesn't always feel like it. Uh, yeah. anything else you like to plug. I mean, I know you're making music and stuff. Just anything else you'd like to share with our? Yeah, our I mean, I'm, I'm making music, working on another album, but it's not done. I've I'm on all the social media. I'm on Twitter, and I guess I'm not on Facebook, but I'm on Instagram and Twitter. I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, you know, Kirk Hamilton, wherever. I guess it's underscore Hamilton on Instagram. <laughs> but the, if you want to <laughs> keep up on the music that I'm working on, you can find me there, and I'll do theme songs for other podcasts and stuff. But. Uh, but no, I'm just sort of around making music and uh, explaining how drum sets work to people. <laughs> and that's going to do it for another episode of Themes and Variation. Thank you so much for listening. We want to know what songs you feel were defined by their solos. So as always, there is a link to a Spotify community playlist in our show notes. Feel free to add your selections there. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for themes for a future episode, be sure to drop us a line at podcast at soundfly.com. And remember soundfly.com for all of your music learning needs. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode and a new theme.